This morning's scripture is from Matthew 6, 5 through 18. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And in praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And let us now, lead us now into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For it is you forgiven, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have received your re- their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and for your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Bless this reading of the Lord's word for the people of God. Thank you, Bob. Anybody ever build a Pinewood Derby car when you were in Cub Scouts or if you had a Cub Scout as a child or whatever? Remember those? What, what shape does that car begin in? Just a rectangular block. You'd go to the wherever, uh, like I remember where I lived, the uh, People's Department Store was the place you went to get your scout uniforms and you know your supplies and all. And you get those pine wood derby. It's just a block of wood, a pine block, a soft pine, so easy to carve and all too. Um, I don't know if you ever had the experience of once you start carving into that thing, you get a little carried away, and before you know it, you go to weigh it because they're supposed to be a certain weight. In other words, they don't want your car too heavy. 
you know, uh, they, it's got, they've all got to be pretty much that same weight so that it's equal when you have the Pinewood Derby race and those, those little wooden cars go down that slope. And so you start whittling away and all of a sudden you discover that I've whittled too much away and now you've got to put little weights on it to get it back in, into the right weight. And it's difficult to do and it makes for some funny looking cars when it comes down to that. And I can remember that whole temptation to, I, I have a temptation sometimes to overdo things, to carve too much away out of it. And so I bring that up to say that what we're seeing this morning in the Sermon on the Mount as we go specifically to the sections on prayer and fasting is that what had happened in Jesus' day, the people having the law from Moses since the time of Moses when he went up on that mountain and God gave him the Ten Commandments, and then we have 633 other laws in the book of Leviticus. Those are the total laws, 633 of them, that over time the people of Israel had been whittling away at them. (laughs) Whittling away at them so much that the heart of that block of wood had disappeared. And so what they tried to do to make the law mean something again, and this was about maybe 300 years before Jesus was born, there was this movement within the Jewish people to revitalize the law. So what they did to do that was they added weights onto it. And these were burdens. And people began to see the burden of the law. And so when Jesus came... What he tried to do was to say, let's remove the weights again. Let's ask God to restore the heart back to this. We'll start over. We'll start fresh. We'll start with the law as it was. We don't have to go about whittling it down, trying to explain away this and explain away that. There were so many interpretations of the laws that, that people would be so confused about what it was they were supposed to do in order to obey God, that they had lost the heart of the law. And so Jesus, in in a a number of sections here, will say this. He will say, uh, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you, you, if you so much as look upon a woman as to lust after her, you have already committed adultery. So a lot of people think that the New Covenant or the New Testament and the Old Covenant and the Old Testament are two separate things and that the New Covenant replaced the Old Covenant and the Old Covenant was thrown in the trash barrel. But Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that do not think that I have come to abolish the law. No, not a jot or a tittle of the law is going to disappear. What he has come to do is to restore the law in its proper meaning to the people. And so he's asking them to go back to the beginning of the law and to take another look at it. And instead of all these burdens and weights being put upon them, uh, you know, he talks about that a number of places. He talks about these hypocritical Pharisees and scribes and the teachers of the law who have gone and made the law so difficult that nobody can possibly, possibly understand or follow it. And so they were, they were caught up in this whole thing of obedience, but they had forgotten the reason for the obedience. Um, someone was telling the story, I, I think it was, uh, I, I can't remember where it was, Lydia will remind me, but it was just recently, it may have been down in Richmond during the conference I was at, but talking about uh, the old story of the, the woman who had the, uh, 
uh, every year she'd prepare like a Christmas ham. And she would take the big old ham and she would cut it in half. And then she would put the uh, ham in the, uh, in, the, in the pan, in the pot. I guess it's a pan. And put it into the oven and cook it. And somebody asked her one time, says, why do you cut it in half before you bake it? And she said, because that, this is my grandmother's recipe. And that's what she says to do. Cut the ham in half. And uh, so that's what I've always done. And then her mother happened to be there and overheard that and said, well, honey, you know that your grandmother did that because she didn't have a pan big enough for the ham. And see, in a lot of ways, the way they were doing the law, they had forgotten the original reason. And Jesus is trying to tell them, this is why you do this, not, not for that reason. And uh, there are so many examples we could see of this in the world that Jesus came into. And it had to break his heart to see this wonderful law. Uh, you know, the ten, ten Commandments are upheld as this pillar, this foundation of society that we can't live without. The idea of faithfulness in marriage, the idea of, of not uh, uh, coveting your neighbors so much that you will go and take their land or you will destroy them in some way. The idea of, of worshiping God and God alone. Uh, the idea of not killing which has troubled a lot of people because human beings are a race of killers. It's part of who we are. When we want something, we kill. When we're defending something that is ours, we kill, including our lives and all too. So you have in the valley here churches that were founded purely upon the Sermon on the Mount and more specifically on that command about thou shalt not kill. And what Jesus says about that and love your enemies and all. And it puts them in a lot of difficult places. It has over the, over the years because sometimes they've been ridiculed as people who won't defend the nation. Because generally they will be pacifists. Uh, Church of the Brethren would be one example. Amish, Mennonites, uh, the historic peace churches we call them. The Sermon on the Mount has really challenged people to understand what it is, is it that Jesus is saying here. And how much are we accountable for? I'm going to tell you this, if you go and read uh, the few chapters there, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that uh, the Sermon on the Mount consists of, that you could read out loud in about 12 and a half minutes. It's not that long. If you go and read it, you're going to be challenged. But what Jesus is doing is he's saying, let's quit this whole thing trying to whittle away at the law and bring it down. And let's raise it up here and see what God was asking you to do and do all in your power to do it. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, be ye perfect. That's what we strive for. Will we be perfect? Absolutely not. I asked the kids in the children's time, do you think that I'm perfect? And, and they, they all said yes. It was pretty reaffirming, you know. They, they've seen no reason. Be ye perfect. And so he's not really giving us it out. He's not saying, no, start to compromise and start to find ways to get around these things. Start to uh, uh, you know, do what the, the Boy Scouts did at Camp Goshen when I was a kid. There was a Jewish troop, and they weren't allowed to pick up their food at the commissary on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, they had to stay inside their camp. So what they did was the day before the Sabbath, they took a rope and they walked it down the trail walked around the commissary, walked back down, and then took the rope and put it all around their camp. 
so that now the commissary was part of their camp. You see, Jesus lived in a time where this is what people were doing. And they had lost sight of the law as something to strive for, something that would bring us into the image of God, back to the image of God, and something which we're not going to achieve unless you believe like John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, who said he did believe it was possible in God's grace that someone could reach perfection, a perfection of love. But that's where God's grace makes up that gap between us and this. But we should always strive to reach that upper part. So then we come this morning to the section on prayer and fasting, which really you have to, there's a triplet here. It's not a duet, it's a triplet of things. There are three things that the Jewish people of Jesus' day, uh, the three righteous things that they were asked to do as a regular part of their lives. Can anybody guess two of them? Prayer and fasting, good. Somebody got that. Yeah, I'm trying to give it away to you, but prayer and fasting were two of them. What would the third one have been? It precedes the section on prayer and fasting just before it. It's actually part of that section. Do not do your alms, your, your, your charitable giving in front of men to be seen of men, to get the praise of men. Okay, so the three things they were asked to do as a regular part of their lives were to uh, charitable giving, which we see in the story of the widow's mite, where the people are going into the temple making a big dramatic show of their giving. And, and the disciples are very impressed with these people coming in with their servants, carrying their bags of gold to put into the temple uh, offering. Uh, they call them little trumpets because of the shape of them. Um, and then here's this woman over here, this widow, very poor widow, and she gives two mites. And Jesus said, well, who gave more? And they said, oh, you know... <laughs> Obvious who gave more, these guys with the servants bringing in the big bags. No. She gave all that she had. She gave all that she had. Jesus is continually challenged with this. And in the section on alms, he says, do not do, not do your giving in front of men so that you might receive the praise of men. I'm telling you, that's all, that's all the praise you're ever going to get. You've received your praise. But do it in front of God who knows what you've done. And you will receive rewards from him. And isn't that better than the praise and rewards of men? So then he moves into the prayer and fasting section. And he's doing the same exact thing. It's the same lesson for alms, prayer, and fasting. Because in the day of Jesus, uh, he saw that what the people had reverted to is they weren't praying in order to talk with God. They were praying so other people would know that they were fulfilling their religious obligations. Uh, a Muslim today, uh, a faithful one, will pray five times a day facing Mecca. We know that. They have their prayer little mats and they roll them out and they, they kneel down and they pray. And we look at that and say, wow, that's kind of difficult. That's, that's devotion. That's, that's a wonderful thing. Do you know that in Jesus' day, a faithful Jew would recite a prayer 18 times a day on the hour, every hour for 18 hours, then they'd go to sleep. And they'd wake up with the prayer, they'd go to bed, there was the final prayer, and then there was the waking up prayer. They did that. And when Jesus says, some of the people just uh, uh, out there, don't be like the ones who just uh, keep repeating vain repetitions over and over and over, as if they can get God's attention through this. They're just going to say the same thing over and over. That was a very popular thing among Eastern religions, not just Judaism. And they kind of adopted that in, that if we just say the same thing over and over and over and over and over, God eventually is going to wear down and he's going to hear that. It might be one single word. 
uh, and they'd say that one single word over and over and over and over. There's a sect of Islam that does that same thing. They will just say Allah, 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 Allah over and over and over, and they whip themselves up into a cataconic fervor and feel like they've been struck by God with this religious gift for them, uh, hearing them. So he says, don't be like that. And don't be like the people who they've got to get their 18 prayers in and they're getting behind, so what they start doing is babbling. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As if just saying the words, no matter how fast you say them or with what thought you say them or what intent you say them, is good enough. Just say the words, the magic words, and it's all over. He says you've made a mockery of prayer. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray like this. And Bob just prayed that prayer. We prayed it at the beginning of the service. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And here's a key thing. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. In the Hebrew, this is in present tense. Thy will be done now. And may that will be done on earth now as it is in heaven. The Jews had certain prayers that they would pray. These were uh, very common prayers and they were at the heart of Jewish prayer to pray for the coming of the Messiah, the promised one. And so uh, everything was though, God, if you would, sometime soon, please soon, you know, may the Messiah come. Send the Messiah. They were begging with God to send the Messiah. But the people Jesus was talking with, his disciples, already believed There was something special about him. He was at least a prophet. There was something going on. And Jesus, in saying this, is saying to them, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here among you. And he's revealing to them bit by bit that he is this Messiah. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Wow, that's a humble prayer. In other words, Father, I can exist purely on bread. Just give me some bread. I will be happy. That daily manna coming from heaven. That's all I need, Father. I'm not asking for riches. I'm not asking uh, for you to uh, uh, do anything beyond what you think. And I'll be thankful for that. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You know, how, how, why should God forgive us when we won't forgive those around us? And that's, that's a huge thing in some people's lives. It's a huge thing in some people's families. It's a huge thing uh, in, in the church today. As the United Methodist Church moves towards a division, a split, which is very likely here, just two months from that meeting. But some people, I know some people are going about this with a heart of blessing and grace and saying, I know we disagree. May God bless you. Go with his grace. Maybe in the future there will be ways that we can work together. But right now, the disagreement is taking us away from the mission of the church, and we need a time apart. You know, Paul even said that in marriage, that sometimes you need to have a season apart (laughs) to, to, to just get out of the fighting cycle to do that. But we have other people, and I've read their comments and all online. They really hate the other side. They hate the people who don't agree with them. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. And in that Lord's Prayer, we pray that we will be able to forgive others. So that God will forgive us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And amen. 
There are several different versions of the Lord's Prayer in the New Testament. Each one of them is a retelling that at its heart have the same things, but little differences, such as the ending. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And no doubt Jesus shared this with the disciples on a number of different occasions. He shared the, the tellings, what he says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. We also read parts of that in, in the Gospel of Luke. Why would he do that? Why didn't he just go to a Christian book uh, publisher and put out, here's copies of the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't have to tell you this again. Because you can just read it now. Well, the problem was virtually nobody outside of the temple scribes and some of the Pharisees and so could read and write. Jesus' disciples, many of them, were illiterate when they first started to follow him. When uh, uh, Peter, you know, there's no gospel of Peter, but Mark is considered to be Peter dictating to Mark his remembrances of Jesus. Inspired by the Spirit, he tells Mark what to write down. And so these were illiterate people. So Jesus is talking to them and he has to give these messages over and over and over to different groups. And as he's telling them these, uh, these stories and all, he has to tell them in a way, and this is why the Sermon on the Mount is not that long, that they can remember what he's saying. So, you know, this isn't real deep when he talks about prayer. It's very pointed because he wants them to have things that they can remember, that they can go and tell their neighbor. If you were to go and tell other people my, my sermon this morning, good luck with that. Try reciting this to anybody. But there is a beauty, especially in the original Hebrew. There is a poetry. There is a, a way that they knew how to speak so that people could remember what they were saying. So Jesus wants to get right to the heart of the prayer thing. He doesn't want to make this complicated. Do this for God. You're speaking to God. And the same with fasting. I haven't talked much about fasting. I've got these instructions on fasting up here for you. But it's the same exact thing with fasting. Fast not for the praise of men, but fast for God. To strengthen that relationship with God. And in fact, he says, when you fast. He doesn't say, if you fast. He says, when you fast. It's an expectation that we will fast. Fast has a, fasting has a great tradition in the Methodist church. I don't think we do it a lot today. It's a very hard time to be fasting in. Too much food all around us. Too, too much temptation. So we might fast from other things. As I said at the beginning, you can fast for an hour. You can fast for two hours, a morning and afternoon. It's not that it has to be something that uh, uh, is life-threatening and all too. So we have these three things, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Our daily lives should take each of those and apply them in some way so that we might begin to be disciplined and to go back to the words of Jesus and to remember these little pearls of wisdom that are coming from him. Now what he says, and I'll end with this, What Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount is absolutely um, the most influential three chapters of literature ever written. What we read in the Sermon on the Mount has changed and challenged people ever since they were uttered. There's nothing else, nothing else like it. And we remember things from it. Uh, Who doesn't know love your enemies? Who doesn't know at least some of the Beatitudes? 
Who doesn't know, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, which we just sang this morning. You know, in there are so many secrets. In the, and we haven't, even, we haven't even gotten yet into the section on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about, Behold the lilies of the field, the birds of the air. Why are you guys so worried? Why do you worry about everything? We should be praying without ceasing, as Paul says. And here's one little advice I'll give about prayer. Prayer doesn't have to be long. In fact, Jesus says in public prayers, that's not necessarily a good thing. Let it be pointed. Go to the Psalms. 51, 91, 23rd, everybody knows. Go to the Psalms. Go to different places in the Bible. Go to the place where the, the man is in the temple praying. And another man is praying very proudly. Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men such as this man over here. And that man is a sinner. And the sinning man is on his knees in a corner. Doesn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. And says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do you know that's one of the most powerful prayers in Christendom? It has been that man's prayer. We, we don't uh, ever recite the proud man's prayer, but the humble man's prayer, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We cannot say that enough. And you can go online, folks, and just Google short prayers for Christians or whatever. And they'll have brief short prayer, prayers that you can pray. And a short prayer can be as powerful or more powerful than something that's lengthy. Uh, last night I had a little bit, you know, last night was a weird night with the time change and all, and I kept thinking, oh, did, you know, am I going to wake up and be on time? And, and um, I had uh, a, a prayer that one of, <laughs> I have some weird nightmares sometimes. And, you know, with, this was a claustrophobic prayer, I mean, a dream. Um, I think I'm mixing up prayers and dreams. Uh, a claustrophobic dream where I'm under a member of our church's car, and she comes out and gets into her car, and she's not a heavy person, but for some reason when she got in, it brought the car down on me, tight. And I panicked, and I looked to my right, and there was another car. But I'm like, if I can slide over and get under that car, but it's also low. But then all of a sudden the car raises up, comes up, and I roll under that car, and I'm able to get out, and I'm free. And I, <laughs> a little winded, I'm there going, thank you, Lord, <laughs> for reminding me that you are always there for me. And it actually became what normally would be a panicked moment for me, and it's something that might keep me up awake the rest of the night, an opportunity to pray to God and to remember that God, God will get me out of the tight, tight spots. And I depend on that. So in your prayers... The most valuable prayers will always be the prayers that are intimately between you and God about something going on in your life. Remember that. You could get invited to pray at the presidential inauguration or wherever, but this prayer between you and God is the most precious, valuable prayer of them all. And I'll end with this. It's just a short little thing I, I read. Uh, I don't remember. It was a kind of a famous person. He was a sports uh, a uh, uh, member of a Christian association you know, of, uh, of, of athletes. And he was 
called on to pray at this national assembly of the athletes. And when it was over, one of the people there made this comment, said, that was the greatest prayer this audience ever heard. And what he was saying was, it wasn't a prayer to God. It was a prayer to the audience. We don't pray to any audience except the audience of one, and that's God. So don't be afraid to pray in front of other people. Pray from your heart. Pray, pray what you need to say to God, and let that be it. And if it's only a few words, if it's only, Thy will be done, thank you God, amen. No greater prayer than that. God's will be done, thanking Him for His will being done, amen. That's a good prayer, right there. Okay? Uh huh. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. They they overdid it. That's right, and that's what we do. Yeah. If a thirty-second prayer is good, a thirty-hour prayer is even better, isn't it? You know. So, uh, thank you. Uh, let me just say this, and, and, and we'll go because Corky reminded me of this. In the old days of Methodism, do you know we had the office of exhorter? And here's what would happen was pe- preachers had, uh, uh, you know, that the presiding elder might have 18 churches he had to tend to. And so he only got to the church to do his, his very uh, uppity seminary-style sermon every so often. Other Sundays, the regular members of the church, the lay people would preach, And they knew what was going on in the church. And so what would happen is when the elder would come to preach, there was an exhorter. And the exhorter's responsibility was to stand up and to say, people, here's what he just said. (laughs) To interpret the educated pastor's sermon to the people. And he knew everybody so he could apply it. He could say, Don, you heard that about prayer? Man, you need to get down on your knees and do some more praying for that harvest that's not coming in very well right now. And, you know, and they would do that, and that was an official uh, office in the church. The exhorter was kind of like the lay leader, what we call the lay leader today. And the last church I've heard of that had that office of exhorter, and they may still have it, was on Tangier Island in Virginia. Tangier Island retained those old class meetings, the exhorters and everything. So anyways, I thank you for being our exhorter <laughs> today there, Corky. Okay, we want to uh, uh, stand. I hope you can take something. I hope we can make a new commitment to prayer and fasting and to almsgiving and uh, those three uh, righteous acts of the people of God. And as we go forth, may we go asking God that we would be His and His alone, that His will would be done in our lives, and that in all ways He would take our lives and make them His own. Go in His peace and go and walk in the steps of His Son. And amen.